0: Welcome to the Prince of Peace podcast. We're here to grow in faith, connect in community, and serve the world. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Well, it's my second week back, and again, it's so great to be back here among you after being on sabbatical for three months this summer. What a gift that was to have that time away, and as part of that time away, we got to see a lot of amazing things as a family, had some great times together. One of the last places we were able to go was to Rome. And one of the details that I missed out earlier on, and I just didn't know about Rome And we got there, we were surprised, we walked into one of the plazas and we, we saw this huge clearly Egyptian obelisks sitting there in the middle of the plaza. And then as we went around the city, we kept seeing these Egyptian obelisks in these different plazas incorporated into fountains. It apparently was a status symbol. After Rome had conquered Egypt, Egypt, this ancient civilization that was known to be one of the greatest civilizations, Rome was saying, guess what? We are now the great civilization of the world and we'll take this object that has been there for centuries and will bring it to Rome that is now the center of civilization. And so around the city you find these different obelisks and different squares. This one was near the Pantheon, and it was originally erected as part of a a temple to the god of Isis, one of the ancient Egyptian gods. The Pantheon is this building that has been there since before the time of Christ. The first Pantheon was built around 29 B.C. The building we see here was built around 126 A.D. You can see inside that building as well in this next shot this great dome that can you imagine at that time to think about the fact that they were able to build something like this. So here you've got this this obelisk from 1300 BC that they brought there to Rome that was dedicated to one of these gods, this pantheon, a building dedicated to all of the gods. And the Romans used these places of worship as one of the ways that they controlled the people. They were there to show the favor of the gods upon the rulers of that time and in those cultures of Egypt and in Rome and in ancient Greece it was often also the rulers of the time that claimed some divine identity before the people and standing at the pantheon I couldn't help but think of being in Caesarea Philippi back in February and you'll see that here That ancient city was far from the power seat of Rome, but it operated as a similar marker of the power of the gods in the region of Galilee. All that remains now are these ruins, but in the next slide you can see what they believed it looked like at the time of Jesus when he went there to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples that we read about in today's gospel. One writer summarizes the scene this way. He said the place was littered with the temples of the Syrian gods. Here also was the elaborate marble temple that had been erected by Herod, the great father of the then ruling Herod Antipas. Here also was the influence of the Greek gods. Here also was the worship of Caesar as God himself. You might say the world's religions were on display in this town. And it was this scene in this, with this background that Jesus chose to ask this most crucial question of his ministry. What an incredibly rich background indeed for Jesus to ask Peter this question that speaks to the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in fact, I think it's this backdrop that helps us to relate to this first century story with our own story in this time and in this place. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And like Peter before us, staring into the eyes of Jesus, he could see in his periphery all of these symbols of power that claim made claims of ultimacy in his time and in that place, Today, we also see the symbols of power in our own time behind Jesus as he asks this question. Our corporate logos, our education logos, our national logos, our personal status logos, our style, cultural logos, economic logos, physical fitness logos, our family logos, and maybe even most importantly, our religious logos in front of all of these symbols of power, stands Jesus. Jesus, the one who chose the path of a servant. Jesus, the one who said he desired mercy. Jesus, the one who tells us to love our enemies. Jesus, the one who always chose the poor and the outcast. This Jesus stands with all of our symbols of power and prestige and security looming behind him. And he asks us, And who do you say that I am? A poignant question because we know a simple answer is not what he is going for here. The inclusion of the geographical location of this story points to the gravity of the question and the answer. For to declare Jesus as Messiah here is to declare Jesus' way to be superior to all of the other ways, the other routes to fulfillment ordained by this world. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes, we are going to build our identity on a different rock than all of those other rocks that were surrounding them. To say Jesus, say yes to Jesus, is to say no to all of those other claims on our lives. It's to say yes, we will die to this world, to these identities to be reborn in the identity of the love and the grace of Jesus. Just think of all of the things that we say no to when we say yes to Jesus. For one, We say no to the supremacy of our nation. Jesus didn't die for the sake of America alone, but for the sake of the world. We are blessed to live in a country that holds freedom as a core value, but we remember that when we declare Jesus as Messiah, our sharing of the gift of freedom may look different for us than it does for those who put nation first. In saying yes to Jesus, we say no to the supremacy of our self-image. This means that what's stylish, what's cool in our culture, can't define and ultimately shape who we are. This goes for our wealth, for corporate power, physical fitness, education, even the image of the perfect family. When we declare Jesus as Messiah, all of these other allegiances take a back seat, All of them may follow, but only if they do not do so at the expense of our putting Christ's humble and self-sacrificing compassion, love, and grace first. And finally, in saying yes to Jesus, we also say no to religion. And this is the most confusing, but also possibly the most important, because it's the one that's most easy to confuse with Jesus. Writers are quick to bemoan the fact that our culture has given way from Christendom to secularism, and there are certainly many places of cultural decay that we are certainly compelled to mourn. But at the same time, mixing power and politics with Christianity is a dangerous proposition that can easily distort our faith. The Pantheon in Rome became a Christian church in 609 A.D., and it makes sense in one way, but it's problematic in another. To reappropriate that space means you run the risk of Jesus simply taking up the place of a new central idol for the people, And when leaders wear the cross and claim the identity of Jesus for themselves, they can, and often did, use that new religion of Jesus just like they had other gods for centuries before to subjugate the people. Jesus stands there at Caesarea Philippi rejecting the use of religion in that way. And Jesus consistently throughout the Gospels is saying no to this way of using religion. He's saying no to the religious leaders who he certainly irritated again and again throughout the Gospels. But Jesus is saying no, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came into our cultures declaring the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, a reality that didn't mean just a slight modification of this world. You couldn't just insert Jesus in place of Pan or Zeus or Isis or certainly not Caesar. No, Jesus came declaring a reality that turned this world's religions upside down because of that humble stance of the servant. The problem of religion is that it inevitably becomes a human institution burdened by human sin and arrogance and self-interest. The good news of Jesus that we proclaim is constantly putting these powers to death so that Christ's humility might rule in their place. And while the church is Christ's body, it can never fully be the Christ. It's always a mere vessel that brings forth Christ to and for the world. Individually, we cannot become Christ through some spiritual perfection, but we reveal the Christ who dwells in us. And we pray that living together in community, the sum of the gifts given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit can work together in a way that others experience and get a taste of what it means to confess the way of the Messiah and the face of so many other ways, just as those disciples did there at Caesarea Philippi. This, I believe, is part of the beauty of our Lutheran witness at its best, because at our best, we are mirroring, mirroring the point of the Reformation, the point to Jesus and not to the church or anything else. The church in Luther's time had become this force within the world that was too focused on itself and the power and the wealth that individuals could amass for themselves as leaders. And Luther tried to cut through all of this and say it's not about the church, it is about Jesus. It's about the good news that Jesus came to bring and this good news has to stand at the heart and the center of who we are and the way that we maintain that identity is by gathering again and again around a table of grace and mercy and sacrifice to remember what Jesus came and died for. And so it is that we gather around this good news that stands at our heart. One of our uh, supplements to our Lutheran book of worship says this. It says, Lutherans believe the Holy Spirit brings people to gather around this gospel gift. And by enlivening the word and sacraments, the means of grace brings the people to trust and believe in God again. Lutherans think that the people who gather are thus formed together by the Spirit to embody and give away to others the very gospel they celebrate. Interestingly, in other cultures, Lutherans are not Lutherans. They're known as evangelical churches, that is, churches that understand themselves to be centered in the gospel, the evangel, the good news. Section concludes Evangelical worship by this understanding does not so much focus on what we do or decide as on what God has done, is doing, and will do. Evangelical worship knows that all people, young and old, insiders and outsiders, old timers and newcomers alike, are in need of this gift, this word of forgiveness, this taste of mercy and life, bringing us again. And again to faith. At the end of the day, the church is an institution like any other. It's burdened by human sin and arrogance and self justification. But at its best, it is an institution that continues to put these powers to death so that Christ may rule in their place. Jesus stands before us once again this day and every day to ask the same question that he asked of Peter long ago. And every day the backdrop is there, and though it changes, it remains. Some days the symbols loom larger than others, but every day this question remains, who do you say that I am? And we are to stand as witnesses to all of the powers and principalities of this world and to claim the power of Jesus. And we pray that he would humbly lift us and all of those around us into the miraculous, transformational power of his love that he gives for the sake of the world. Amen.